Welcome to my basement, everybody. I hope everybody is doing great out there. I hope you can hear us okay. My buddy Bill Roper is back from last week. We talked about a little bit of uh, Disney, a little bit of Blizzard. He's uh, raising the roof right now, which is awesome. About three people get that. Uh, but we, we ran out of time because we had so much to talk about. The time just went poof so fast. And I said, Bill, would you please come back? And, and uh, he graciously agreed to come back for us to be able to carry on this conversation. And we're going to get into it. And what we want to do this time, too, is open it up to questions from uh, the chat. So if you've got any questions for Bill Roper, this man has had an incredible career. He's worked at Blizzard and Disney, and he started a studio called Flagship, and he worked at Cryptic. And there, I'm sure there's other several other stops and lots of stories to get into. Um, but I want to give, first of all, some uh, shout-outs for people that are joining us. Goku and Nintendo Boy, Hip Hop Dan, uh, NHS. Oh, NHS Admin, Alpha Cat, Johnny Jenkins. It's great to see everybody. And for those of you that are listening to the podcast on a podcast service, know that we do live podcasts on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash EPNTV, where you can not only listen, but see very, very handsome people like Mr. Bill Roper right here. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm doing good. You know, we're, uh, we're just getting the first little flakes of snow happening here so I'm, I'm hoping we get some actual white stuff falling on the ground uh we'd love to go out and do snow angels in the front yard at you know 11 at night and wake up our neighbors so our, our, yeah our climate's exactly the same we're in vancouver and my kids just been waiting at the window like well come on because yeah. we keep getting the snow warnings and then nothing happens yeah everyone like was saying like are you ready that snow apocalypse is coming again and we're like <laughs> okay i, I <laughs> Great. We'd love to have a little snow. You know what that means, though, man? You're going to be stuck inside. Yeah, because <laughs> everything's going to be different. Everything will be different. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, last week we, we got into um, a little bit of. Um, we talked, I think, quite a bit about the Blizzard days. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that I. One thing I want to get into with Blizzard is just how much it evolved and how much it changed. And then what precipitated your decision to leave like what, what was the choice there what happened yeah i mean the i mean the, one of the biggest things that that we saw that changed just really is growth of the studio right um i was there for nine years and we went from you know like under 20 people to i think over 600 by the time we left wow, wow. um and working on you know from going from one main project and some other things to you know having three main projects running, having the team up in the San Francisco Bay area, which was Blizzard North, um, you know, creating IPs, uh, moving to being like a very serious online company, right? Which is really different. Uh, you know, when the original Warcraft Orcs and Humans was two players over local, local area net, um, we were well into the development of World of Warcraft when we left. So it's was just this, I think, really incredible evolution of, moving from always wanting to be connected to other people, right? Even in the very first PC game that came out, making sure that two people could play together all the way up to how we want to make an MMO, right? And I mean, that was a that was a crazy endeavor because they had never done anything like that before. Yeah. Um, you know, if you really look at even when the original Warcraft launched, I think it's it's easy to think back on it like, oh, it was this gigantic, massive you know, wonderfully shiny, foolproof thing. It's like, eh, no, it wasn't, right? It was pretty big. It was very uh, 
it was very ambitious for when it came out. Uh, it was not a, a, a soft, easy, smooth launch by any stretch. Yeah. I think that's a, a big thing too, is that players somehow are always surprised when an online game launches and there's bumps in the road. Right. And it's like, even Blizzard, even as they get to still this stage on where they are in maturity as a company, 30 years this year, right? So 30th anniversary, still has stutters when they launch online stuff. Like you can never prepare for how it's going to go until you actually have tens of thousands of people logging in from all over the world. Um, no test you run with bots or, you know, as many people as you can gather can prepare you for it. So um, I always give every company like, you know, on launch day, that slack where it's just like, oh, yeah, you're going to run into a bunch of stuff you didn't know was going to happen. Um, you know, I think as, as a part of that evolution, right, and things got bigger, um, there, w- there became a- another thing that happened was new ownership, the parent company ownership of who Blizzard was a part of kept happening every two years. Like our kind of inside joke was, hey, every two years at E3, like there's always a new giant name over the booth area. Right. Right. Whether that was Davidson and Associates or then it was, you know, Voss or CUC or uh, and on and on. Right. It was just constantly kind of resetting that top line relationship. And so when we got to 2003, um, I had moved to the Bay Area. I was working at Blizzard North, um, working on a project there. And we saw another change that had come up with that. And then there was rumors, and this is when um, when Havas had already bought the company, and then CUC owned it, and there was a whole big. You can go do all the digging if you want um, online to find out this giant, incredible like fraud that happened at the corporate way above us. None of us had anything to do with it. Level yeah. that basically tanked the stock price. And they were talking about like, we need to sell off some companies and video games are not our core competency, right? Of this CUC group, um, which was actually became Ascendant. There was Havas and Ascendant, uh, CUC, and they merged, or HFS and CUC merged to be this company called Ascendant, right? And really the core competency of that group was um, subscription, Rose. subscription oh, okay. stuff yeah. and, and services, right? So like uh, CUC was, was CompuCard, which was, if you ever remember back in the day, for, for those of us, they used to have the people would come and sell you these books of coupons that you could use like, oh, go to, go to this restaurant and get this thing for this cheap, right? It was basically like these big um, subscription type things that they did. And that was CUC, which was CompuCard company. And then HFS owned things like Hertz, and hotels. So the wow. merger, that made total sense. <laughs> right? We have a bunch of th- places, things that people use and come to, and we're going to merge the company that sells people memberships yes. in using things, right? So that totally made sense, sense but that Blizzard sense, didn't but make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So but we're a part of it from some earlier Havas merger. And it. So anyway, Ascendant, they get together. There's a giant scandal on how they got together. Um, Ascendant at the time then gets filed up in this like largest fraud lawsuit ever. Um, we were on, the Blizzard leadership was on a leadership retreat, right? Um, and we were all in Alan Adham's room. We'd all met there. He was like, oh yeah, let me throw my jacket on and stuff. Uh, we'll, we're all going to go get dinner. And the news comes up like on CNN, it, it's like it, you're, you're, it shows up and it says uh, it's the send it logo. And we're like, oh, wow, send it to the news. And then fraud, the big oh, fraud, no. fraud. 
what what happened (laughs) so like we're out of the country you know and it's like 2001 or something we're just like ah yeah so basically you know (laughs) any any future i had in terms of my stock disappeared you know all that kind of fun but that led to them wanting to sell off blizzard right in some way but we never knew what that was and so i was at blizzard north with dave brevik and ercomax schaefer and we're up there trying to run a couple of studios working on, and think about this, this is like 2002, 2003, working yeah. on Diablo yeah. 3. Right. <laughs> That's how early we were working on it. Wow. Uh, think about when it actually came out. Uh, and and then another unannounced project, right? We we're trying to spin something else up because it was all about growth inside of the company too. And we literally would read uh that they were the that Sendent was thinking about selling off Blizzard or selling the IP or spinning it off into a new video games group or like and on and on and on these rumors every so week total you know, shaky days you didn't know what yeah, the hell total was shaky happen. days we yeah. don't know what's going to happen right right um, we don't have employment contracts there's nothing that secures the the employees or any of us in right. the case of any of these things happening yeah so uh, Dave and Eric and Max and myself basically wrote a letter to the head of, of uh, Ascendant at that time, right? Jean-Marie Messier and his board and said, we need to, we need, we would like to be involved. Like we need to be involved in what's happening. Like we're, we're officers in, in Blizzard, right? And all we see is rumors and it's killing our productivity and our people sure. don't know what to expect and we can't offer them any guidance. So all we're asking you for is an email or a phone call, like get us up to speed. And we just said, and if, and if you can't do that, then we can't fulfill our fiduciary responsibility to properly run the studio. Right. Because right? it's we'll, going to trickle down all the way. Every person that's right. working in every table, every seat is yeah, going to be it already, having their it own already had. Yeah. yeah, it already had, right? You go into a yeah. meeting where you talk about game design and people are like, oh, I saw today that maybe EA is going to buy us. Is that true? Do you guys know God. anything? That's yeah. all that you talk about. You can't make things in that kind of an environment. No. So we basically said, like, you've got a clue with something what's happening. Right. Or, yeah. or, or we're going to, we're going to walk. Right. Cause, and, and you don't, I don't think any of us thought they would actually be like, Oh, well, we'll let you guys walk out of the building for sake of a phone call or email. Wow. But they did. Wow. Right. And so well, I guess, I guess you're resigning. So we didn't, you know, we hadn't told the studio we were going to do this. This is that like, we're going to try to apply a little bit of pressure to get some information for our people. And that, that did not happen. So they invited oh, us to no longer be a part of the company. So that's wow. why we left. Not because we didn't believe in Blizzard and didn't love the team and the people there. Um, you know, and in fact, a bunch of Blizzard North people ended up leaving Blizzard to come join us at Flagship. Right. But that was the impetus, right? And we, we, I mean, we sent that email on a Thursday by late Friday night or Saturday morning, um, Morheim had heard back and called and said like, oh, so yeah, they are, they're, they're happy to see you guys go. Wow. We'll be up on Monday to figure out what that means. Right. So I was out, I was out taking a weekend away. Like all, the four of us were not even in the Bay area. And so yeah. we all drive back. Yeah. We meet Eric's house. We talk you, about like, you reasonably thought that they would say, oh, well, this is not cool of us. Let's connect yeah. with these people and communicate better. Right. But like instead got, we, they uh, went, eh. Yeah, yeah, I mean, wow. the, 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 the you know, Brevik was the president of Blizzard North, and 
Max and Eric and I were all VPs. And it's, you know, if I'm, if I'm running a company and three high level executives wow. email and say, we have a really big problem and all we want to do is talk to you on the phone or have an email. Yeah, I would, I think I would do that, but that was just not on their radar, apparently. Bill, does, is this a, endemic thing in games i mean we know that activision itself was founded with that same kind of treatment you know it was it was atari people that just felt like they weren't getting the uh you know the recognition or the respect that they earned and deserved as building up the atari brand and name with good games and so, so they went off and started activision and yeah. then we're seeing you know like the google um the stadia ho- ho- games and entertainment group have just losing you know, any employment there. We see lots of strife over at Amazon. Is this a thing where these outside entities have a stake in games, but they don't really understand the creativity? Is this a recurring thing that keeps happening? It it sure seems to be, you know, I think, uh, I mean, in some instances, in some instances, right. uh, It may be because the company pivots. Yeah. Right. And they're like, Hey, we're doing a different thing now. Yeah. Right. Um, or we went into this believing that like I look at, at Google with Stadia. Right. We're going to yeah. go into this. We believe we, you know, have a platform. We have where we have a platform for streaming games to get rid of boxes. Right. Just play what you want, where you want everywhere. And we're going to build out some internal studios as well to make games for Stadia. Like we're going to eat our own dog food is the expression. Right. right. Um, and then so they got to the point. Yeah, yeah, it was a terrible <laughs> thing. I don't know why, but that's what it is. It's not. It's never like we're going to eat our own cake, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I guess because dog food's not as appetizing, maybe. Right. And, right. You know, and it's and you got to take you got to take the you got to you gotta try business. it to make yeah. sure it's okay. Yeah, so. for sure. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I, with with Stadia, I could see where they went into it with all good intentions, right? And part of I me, and they hired Jade yeah. Raymond, right? I mean, they brought in big hitters to do this stuff. Yep. And probably got to a point where like, wow, you know, making video games is hard. It's not our core competency. It's really not our core business. Yeah. We'd be better off working with studios that, it, that, that is their core competency in business mm-hmm. and support them in a way to do that. But then that means, but they've already made a big investment, right? They've already built up studios. And so they're like, well, I guess we close these down, right? It, I mean, to a degree, Disney did the same thing. Like yeah. they really... They really were were all about making um, Disney as meaningful a brand in games as it is in film and television and theme parks. Like that was the intent. That was what we were doing when we were there. Yeah. And they got to a point where they're like, oh, you know what? This just, this is not our core competency, right? And so Disney went to what they're really good at, which is licensing, finding great partners to work with that that represent their brands and bring them to life. And right now it feels like they're more into games than ever, through right. their strategy, which right. is exciting. But which let's, is fantastic. Let's... And they're not making them, right? So and, I think and they're not taking that huge risk. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of times that you see happen, I do think there are other times where you get people to come in, they're not from the game space. Yeah. Um, they get put into a position where they're making the calls and driving uh, what's supposed to be happening with yeah. the game companies yeah. that are underneath them. And they're just like, we, I don't know. I don't have to do about it. I always talk about that as, and, and sometimes they're like really, like voraciously want to get into gaming, right? Yeah, or they yeah. want to do this. Or we're going to acquire this because we have this whole thing. And then to me, that's always the the dog that catches a car finally. Yeah. And the dog's like, well, uh, what do I do with it now? I have it, but now what do I do? Yeah. It kind of just, well, they can't, 
eat it <laughs> or play with it or whatever it is, and they, they let it go. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's it's really tricky because I still think we're a young industry. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the you know, uh, I mean, about thirty years, fifty years. I don't know when we stop being young, but we're not oh, as it's young. It's young. It's not as old as you know, film or television or books or music or any of the other kind of entertainment things. Well, let's talk about film here for a second in, in correlation. And of course, you work with lots of film properties and stuff, but it's the same thing in movies, but in a different way. You can't fall into it. You can't buy into it. You can spend a lot of money to get something made. But if you're not kind of figuring out the mechanics and the minutia and the relationships and the, you know, the curation in film, and you're not going to be in it for the long haul. We see, you know, major studios come up and go all the time, people that are like content creators. And it's, it's I think, a little bit different. It's more technologically focused in video games. And I think people yeah. think that you can, you can uh, sort of wrap your mind around tech so you can buy tech and buy your way into games. But it's just as creative, and you need to you need to employ lifers. You need to sort of work with people that are going to do it for the long game. You know, mm -hmm. that's why it was shocking to me with Google. It's like you you, you brought in Phil Harrison. You you know, you brought in Jade Raymond. These are not people that none of nothing in this deal is going to surprise anybody. You know, right. they were going to be straight up with you about how long this was going to take and how much it was going to cost. How how come? We don't even get to see one game from the Stadia Games and Entertainment Group. That just seems insane to me. Yeah, it's it is really interesting. I mean, I know when I was at Disney or anytime I talk with anybody who's at media companies that are involved in games, it really comes down to does that company have the wherewithal or vision to say we are treating games is a weird way of saying it as its own legitimate business, right? Because right. yeah. for a lot of times in media with film and television, especially film, games were just another marketing source. Yes. They're yeah. just another licensing opportunity. Totally. Yeah. Like we're going to put our character on diapers and notepads in a video game, mm -hmm. right? And I would argue video games are more complex to make than notepads or diapers. So <laughs> diapers are pretty magical <laughs> technology-wise. But it's... You know, and then it's, they kind of get, I think, um, either lulled or fooled into believing, oh, well, video games are easy, right? Like kids play them. How hard can they be? I don't know. There's, sometimes there's a weird mentality around them and they don't understand, like they are as hard as making a movie and as hard as launching a technology. It's like yes. one, right? right? Yes. And, and that's like what Infinity was insane because it was also as hard as running a toy business, that right? Is so crazy, yeah. Uh, but it's it's interesting. I think we're now seeing media companies that are more understanding, right, of not only the power of video games but the complexity of video games, right? Like the one that stands out to me as being having really taken this seriously is Warner Brothers. Yeah. Right. They are like, nope, we know that video games are huge business. We know that they are entertainment. We know that they need to have the proper support, not just marketing or IP, but like building great teams and giving them the time to do it and do it and right. They, yeah. And they've taken some pretty big risks, right? Like a Dirty Harry game that didn't actually come out, but it was going to have Clint Eastwood. And there's been an appreciation and a respect. It's different now with AT&T as their overlords. And you feel like things could shift at any moment. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. Warner Brothers 
has hired really, really competent, awesome people like Samantha Ryan um, mm-hmm. and like done some really amazing things. Like nobody believed that a, an, a, an incredible Batman game was going to come out and sort of take the game of the year kind of thrown from a lot right. of other ty- types of games. But Warner Brothers made that happen, you know. Um, I want to uh, go back to um, just the, the sort of the wrap up with Blizzard here for a sec. But first, I want to just uh, uh, throw out a nice big uh, thank you to our sponsor, which is the uh, the Gaming Stadium. They are Canada's leader in online esports tournament facilitation. They've got tournaments going on every weekend. You don't want to miss out on that action. You can find out more about them at tgs.gg. They're incredible people, and uh, they have been huge supporters of The Rundown and now Vic's Basement, so thank you. Um, but um, I, I got a question here from Nintendo Boy 17 and we're going to get to that, and then I want to go back to Blizzard here for a second. What was your most embarrassing moment in game development? <laughs> wow. Are you that chronologically or alphabetically? Uh, most embarrassing moment. Uh Okay, this this is this was pretty embarrassing, and you you kind of have to learn how to flow with these. Yeah, but there was uh, during Infinity development where uh, we would have maybe once a quarter we would go and have an update to Bob Iger. So first of all, it's Bob Iger, right? And you're like, oh, okay, I, I today's the day where I actually like wear a sports coat. Right. And I might even wear my tie, but I'm a gamer guy. So I have one button undone. Right. <laughs> um, and we were really excited because we had just got it to the point where when you took a figure and put it on our prototype reader, it would come to life in the game. We're like, oh, massive milestone. This is huge. Right. And so we're going to bring in one of our figures that's kind of like pretty far along in the approval process, which is really exciting. Um, so it's going to look really good. We're going to put it on our, you know, kind of janky prototype reader, but we'll put a nice cover on it so it looks decent. We're in Bob's boardroom. We've set it up. We've tested it. Everything's great. We're like, mm, this is good. We're ready to go. <laughs> Bob comes in. And let me say, I, an incredibly intelligent and even and just so impressive person, mm-hmm. right? Um and come in and we're talking about things and um, it's not just his breadth of knowledge, but it's the depth as well. So he's talking about games as someone who has obviously invested some time into learning what this space is about. Great. Right. Cause at this point, very important to the Walt Disney company to be doing this. Yes. So we're there, we're showing it, we get to the thing, we get to the part of the presentation. We're like, oh, all right. And so here we go. And we're going to show you for the first time this happens. So we have the game up and running on the big screen television in there. I grab an infinity figure put it on the base, nothing happens. Oh no. And it's just like, uh, we, oh, this, uh, we, we just test this. And so one of the engineers is like scrambling, trying oh, to figure out like, no. why did not fire off when I was working. So we vamp for like about a minute <laughs> and we try it again, doesn't work. And, and, you know, Bob was very, was very generous and we just kind of moved the meeting on, but yeah, that's super embarrassing. You're like, all right, this is like my boss's boss's boss. I got oh, like he's, he's pretty much the boss of everybody. He's everybody's yeah. boss at, at this point. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, it's it's a it's not like I'm meeting with him all the time. You know, it's yeah. maybe like two or three times a year I'm meeting with him. Does he get so, that though? Does that does that happen in film and TV where they want to show an effect shot and it's just not working? Like, does he does he understand that? Does it correlate yeah, for him? Yeah, I mean. 
Yeah, it's it's much more tech side, right? Yeah. Usually, if you're going to show somebody something from film or TV, like you get the shot. Yeah. Right. If yeah. you have the shot, you can be like, oh, hey, this is these are temp these are temp effects or something. Well, we I mean, Disney's so big; they're into robots, man. So I would imagine yeah, right. that he's had yeah. robots fail. In front is where yeah, yeah. you're gonna go in. It's, like, it's amazing, and I'm trying to show you, and then it like decapitates another. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, but he's cool. He's fine. Yeah, I mean, he, that's the thing is he he understands that stuff. Yeah, right. He sees that, and Disney is both a very old and established company right. and also technology innovators. Incredibly progressive in yeah. so many cool ways. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. So they, they, you know, they don't see that. I mean, and Bob connects the dots super yeah. well. Right. right. Like my favorite Bob Iger story about that. Um, and Bob, if you're watching, I love you. And thank you for letting me tell this next story, even though you're not, not going to tell it. Yeah. Um, Disney started an accelerator program where they where companies could apply and come in and then they got access to Disney IP and to some Disney technology and creative leaders and could work on products. Right. And so one of those companies is the, is the company that does that did Sphero. Right. And so they're like, their big thing was we have this really cool toy. It's a ball that you can roll around and, and remotely control from your phone, but they recognized like it just, but it doesn't, it's not doing what it could be doing because it's just a ball that lights up. Right. Yeah, like we yeah. know there's gotta be something more we can do. So they came to the accelerator, started brainstorming ideas. And at one point, um, Bob was meeting with um, the gentleman who was heading the accelerator and he's like giving him an update. Hey, here's the cool stuff that's coming through. Bob sees Sphero and he says, uh, I want to talk to those folks. So I think they got him on a phone call or, or Bob came to an accelerator event or did that. And he said, um, and he pulls up his phone and he's like, doo, 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 and he says like, holds up a picture. He says, could you guys make this? And he shows them a picture of BB-8 because he'd been on the F7 lot. Yeah. And they said, there is no company more qualified in the world to make that for you. Oh, yes. Yo, that's a right? great, a great and response. So boom. <laughs> now they're doing BB-8. Yeah. Right. For the film. Right. And then of course, I'll get up. Sorry. I have to get up. Yeah. Uh, Right. And then that leads to that leads to them then making the cool BB-8 Sphero. Yes. They, right? they sent me one of those and I interviewed the Sphero people and it, it completely blew my mind. I, in fact, this is a Sphero Spider-Man, which right. I, which has become and I just said Spider-Man. So he's alive. Uh, but it, yeah, it's become like uh, that's kind of my new co-host <laughs> in the basement these days. But I, but I love it. I mean, that, that's how quickly he puts that together. Right. right? Think about everything happening inside the Walt Disney Company. He sees an accelerator project. He's like, oh, ah. I know how to hook that up with something that would make a lot of sense. That's amazing. That's that is one of his particular geniuses. That is um, incredible. Ulrich Firelord, thank you. Love you. That is amazing. And thank you for the super chat. You rock. Um, okay. Um, let's go back to uh, the, the sort of closing the doors on Blizzard because, of course, you've not you're, you don't just work there. You were there from you know less than twenty people. You were the seventeenth yeah. employee did you was there baggage was are you friends with people still like you know Morheim was there was would, did that relationship get completely trashed after you guys left or were you guys no, okay it, was, it, it very much was an us against the world uh, mindset there yeah yeah so when when we left there was definitely a, and i would say a small handful of people that were like oh, well they're not with us they're against us right, right? yeah good, good riddance but i have 
lifelong friends since that point. I have friends that I've had for 27 years now that I met when I started working there that I still talk with. Like I still talk with Mike. I still talk with Chris Metzen, right. You know, uh, with Rob Parter, like there's, uh, you know, um, if I run into Sam Didier recently at a Comic-Con, like we sit and talk, right. There's, and I think it's because once you work at Blizzard, the, I don't know, the saying is like you, you bleed Blizzard blue from then on. You're always a part of the family, if you will. Um, and it, and that I think is at least true for when we were there. But I've met people that worked, you know, in Blizzard in the mid 2000s. So, you know, like 10 years or more after I left. And there's like almost just an instant connection you have. That's it's awesome. like, yeah, we both work for the same place. And maybe, you know, some of the same people, but you know the same philosophies, right? That are it, there. It is an incredibly special place. I have great memories of visiting there for sure. Yeah. And and I don't. Rob's not there anymore, right? And Chris isn't there, and Mike isn't there. Yeah. Are there people there there that were like the thirteenth employee and stuff? Like yeah, I mean, like I, I'm, I'm pretty sure like Sam Didier is still there, right? Yeah. Sam was the art director. Sam was there well, well before I was. You know, oh, wow. we're gonna have to like take his desiccated corpse out from behind his desk. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, you know, there's. Uh, I think like Bob Fitch is still there, who's one of the like the first early engineers, awesome. right? You know, awesome. um, there's, and I think that's, that's a really huge deal. Like there's with Blizzard being on its 30th anniversary, like they probably still have a, you know, a handful of people that are in their mid 20 plus years at Blizzard. That's wild. Right. Which, which I think was what I assumed would happen. Yeah. <laughs> You know? I mean, you were you were creating magic. Uh, let's talk yeah. about Rob Pardo and and uh, World of Warcraft here for a second, because that, uh, although it was part of a mythology and a and a world that you were all familiar with, I remember getting into a long conversation with Rob at Video Games Live. Actually, I sat beside him on one side and and Elijah Wood on the other. It was a very surreal night watching Tommy perform at the Hollywood Bowl. Right. Uh, but I talked to Rob about. Uh, um, story in video games and he was a huge proponent of the idea that we don't need them anymore you know the the player is going to be building the stories but that seems antithetical to blizzard and i'm wondering if that was you know a, a source of conflict or like constant conversation between the groups and and how did you guys sort of navigate through all that yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, in the time period where Rob and I overlapped, I don't, I don't know if that's where he was as a mindset yet. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah. I think a lot of that came after World of Warcraft launched and had several years of success. Right. So what you start seeing is then people creating their own stories as you've given them this sandbox to play in. Totally. Now, there's a lot of story in World of Warcraft. Oh, yes. a lot. Yeah. Right. Um, but not where every minute of your gameplay is absorbed by it, like you would see in, you know, a, even a single player sandbox game or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, or certainly a lot of, of great single player RPGs. You've got times where what you're doing is people getting together in an, in an MMO and, hey, we were going to do a raid, but maybe let's go do this thing instead. Or, oh, tonight we're going to go do this. Or, hey, I need help getting my armor. Okay, well, it's super below me, but whatever. Let's go do it. Let's go help you, right? People create their own emergent fun and stories. That must've been so eye-opening for all of you guys. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. It, it really was. I mean, we, I think that was something that um, 
certainly at Blizzard was, but I think in every game company, for sure, every time yeah. you release a game, you are surprised by what people do with your game. Totally. Right. Um, and usually positively, sometimes like you're like, oh God, please no, why are you doing that? Um, but it's fascinating because that's that's the thing you can't ever prepare for. And as a designer, you have to really be willing to let go is someone's going to play the game in the way that I didn't envision it, massive yeah. air quotes. Yeah. But as long as they're having fun and not hurting anybody, then that's the way it should be played. I'm, you know, and I think that was something um, we found with with even Diablo, right? People would like come up with these different kinds of runs they would do, or different armor they'd look for, or you know, different ways they would play. They they would go and say like, oh, the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to collect as many of these as I can, or whatever it is. They made up their own parameters for gameplay. Yeah. Right. World of Warcraft unlocked that a lot more. Disney Infinity, the whole central component and conceit of that game is that toy box it's like oh you know do what you want play without limits if you can dream it you can do it as walt said right that's yeah, the yeah. and i think when we got in when i got to you know when i was at cryptic we were talking about well what can we do in champions and what can we do in star trek right there was always a discussion of like oh okay let's recognize that people are going to do weird stuff yeah right and try yeah. to hopefully take some of it into account Right. And so if they try it, maybe like, let's figure out, yeah, that could work and at least make it so it doesn't break everything. Right. And you run into like really weird problems. Um, and to me, that's the, that's the power of QA in any company, right? You want people that are going to go try weird stuff. Yes. They're looking for bugs and yes, they're, you want them to write it up in a way that you can reproduce it to eliminate it. But more importantly, like find all the bizarre edge cases, try all the crazy stuff, Right. Because sometimes you're like, you know what? That's really cool. Let's just leave that in. Yeah. That just became a feature. Right. <laughs> um, and and I think that it is really eye opening. And it's actually, um, you know, it's actually really delightful if you're yeah. a designer. Find people yeah. do fun, weird, strange things with your game that it wasn't intended to do. Um, I, I, I think a great example of that is what Gary Witta did by doing animal talking. Totally. Right. Yeah. He's like, here's Animal Crossing game. Like, you know what? I could stream on Twitch and just use this as a setting and have people come in. And it's like, I just, just spun a whole new thing out of that game. That was happening already in things like world of Warcraft and stuff. Though, right. Wasn't it? You know, it's, it strikes because the conversation right now is all about the metaverse. Dean Takahashi and, and games mm -hmm. beat is going to be all about the metaverse, right? People are working right. actively on it. And here we have these MMOs, you know, Ultima Online, World of Warcraft, Champions, like people were, you guys were punching above your weight with technology that couldn't really sort of hit the imagination that you had for these things, but you were crafting the metaverse. You were letting people yeah. live in these worlds, man. And, and I think the, the big difference we're seeing now is stuff like Raph Coster's doing or, you know, any of these like big metaverse types projects. Yeah. Trying to create systems that allow people very broadly to like do the thing you want in the world. Yeah. Right. So it's not about, Oh, if you play this, yes. Like in world of Warcraft, you, you are limited and like you're picking a character class, right. Which is going to kind of drive what you do right. around the gameplay mechanics. There's an era that you have to fit yes. in. Right. And yes. As opposed to like a true metaverse, somebody's going to build. It's just like, well, here's a massive sandbox. Do you have an interest in something? Oh, well, we've provided you tools to go do that thing. 
right? See, this, wanna... is, this is where, it, like, circling back to Google, it just doesn't make sense that they just drop that because who's going to provide the back end for the metaverse if it's not a company like Google or Amazon or, right. you know, like the, they need that infrastructure in order to, to get us to a point like that. Yeah, and I think, I think what will end up happening is that a, a company like a Google or Amazon will provide that back end. Yeah. Right. They will be that. They've, in Google's case, have made the decision they're not going to be the ones that actually build it. Yeah. Right. Um, but they're going to, but they will, I'm sure, find someone who is and say, great, we believe in your vision. You do that. We're going to give you all the firepower we can on our side, which is building the infrastructure. Right. But you're going to be the experts at like what that actually means as a, as a game or an experience yes, or whatever yes. it is. Yes. You know, and that's that's the thing too. I think you mentioned a great thing about technology, right? I mean, you look at how long ago companies were trying to do VR and right. the stutter steps we've had with VR. Yeah. Now the technology has come far along where you've got good VR products that are out. The, the challenge is the consumer base. There's just not enough people that in many cases have physical space to set up a VR environment. Totally. Yes. Right. Yeah. To do that. Um, but then I look at um, location-based entertainment and how they've incorporated VR. And it's incredibly cool. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to do the Star Wars experience. No, I want to so bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's remarkably cool. It is so good. And it's amazing how they're combining things from uh, like stage theater and theme parks and LARPing to a degree. And then with this technology of VR, um, and it's, it, it's crazy, like you, how they can do things in a physical environment to fool you when you have the VR gear on. We've all watched the videos of like, here's somebody at home playing a VR thing and it's a scary they duck and they're screaming and they're swinging stuff around and knocking lamps over or whatever <laughs> in their house. Falling but over. You, yeah. Falling over. You go and do it in one of those settings. They've done some incredible work as an example to figure out what is the degree they can actually have you go left or right to move, but by how they do the VR artwork, how they show them to you, it tricks your brain to think you're walking straight. That's cool. So they can actually have you physically walk in a big circle and it feels like you're walking straight down an endless corridor. Wow. Right. They do things where um, they'll get you to walk onto a platform that vibrates. And then as it, as it shakes a little bit, the video, the, the environment you're in, like is like you're on an elevator pad moving upwards and you totally believe like, Oh my God, I'm on this five foot by five foot thing, this pillar that's rising a hundred feet in the air. And you're extra fooled by it because of the, the haptics, that's right? Amazing. It's, yeah. it's such an incredibly cool thing. So that'll right? be way too expensive to bring home. And yes. Well, it, and, well, today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like and, now, and an inf unfortunate uh, time period to have that cool business. But clearly the writing is on the wall. That is going to be an amazing future for us when we go out. We're, yeah, we're going to be exactly. able to go see Star Wars 15 and then go live in Star Wars 15. Yeah, go live there. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, that's why I think like, like big media companies, right? Like Universal's or Disney's or that have entire divisions within their company dedicated to figuring out how to make cool location-based entertainment. I love it. Right. I love it. How do we do that? And as the gear gets less expensive and the headsets get smaller and the hardware to run them gets smaller, right? It just, 
it, it's that kind of thing where I, I really felt this time around in VR, like, okay, it's here to stay. It's yes. going to be slow ramp. Yes. Yes. But it's not going to go away again. We're going to go, ah, VR. Yeah. Right. It's like, no, it's just going to take a while to get there. Did you pick up a quest? Do you have a quest or a quest two? I don't. And I have the room now. Yeah. I should. I didn't. Because when, really, yeah, when I thought about really getting into it, we were in London in a very small flat. So it's yeah. like, I have no room. And I had a, <laughs> like, at that point, a two-year-old, like, nope, this is all disaster. <laughs> yeah. um, but now we, we're in a big enough space where, you know, I could probably, even here in my office, maybe I could just dedicate. Yes. Room yeah, you got to watch the shelves. I knock over figures every once in a while. <laughs> That's the thing I'm worried about. <laughs> I know that I'll just get so into it, I'll just be flailing around. <laughs> I, I do. VR Grid is loving this conversation, by the way. And thank you for the super chat, my friend. You rock. You rock. Um, let's. Um, I, I know we're jumping all over the place, but I, I think about 2020 and I think about Disney Infinity. And I'm talking to a person that was shepherding Disney Infinity. Do you think had last year on the Nintendo Switch last, you know, the, that massive install base for the PlayStation 4, that large install base for the Xbox One. If Disney Infinity had launched last year, would that have been a different story completely for Disney? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I think that in some ways it might have, mm. right? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the challenge... The, the challenge in the way that it was implemented with Disney Infinity would not have gone away, which was the physical goods. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that probably would have made it harder because you're trying to work with factories in China. There was a lot of flying back and right. forth, spitting right. plastic, like all of that would have been disrupted, right? Um, I think that, you know, if it, if you, if you wouldn't have had supply line challenges, yeah, absolutely. Right. No one's going anywhere. That's why gaming outperformed like crazy last yes, year. Yes. You know, even as bullish as I think the industry was on how we were going to do, people are like, okay, well, I can't go to the movies. I can't go out. I, you know, what am I going to do? So that's why you saw gaming go through the roof and you saw streaming services go through the roof. Yeah. Right. Like Disney Plus's numbers were bananas because why not? Yeah. I've got, you know, I'm not spending money on going to theme parks, going to restaurants, going to sporting events, all those things are spent on like, so, and I'm not commuting, right? Well, so my disposable income has gone up dramatically, no matter who you are, Yeah. right? You've got more to spend, unless of course you haven't been working, Yeah. right? So in which case, then you're scrapping every penny together because we haven't been getting a lot of assistance down here in the USA Yeah. You know, in terms of, of being able to keep people in their homes and whatnot. Um, but if you had money, if you had money that you were spending, right, on entertainment, suddenly your places to spend it were very small. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was just looking for a new surprise. movie for my family to watch the other night and it was, it was kind of tragic. There's been nothing made, yeah. <laughs> or nothing well, released. You saw they moved the Oscars, right? I just, yeah. I just found it last night. It's not yeah. until April. Yeah, and they're, and they're letting films that come out through the end of February be competing for it. And I have to only assume that's because of COVID. Yeah. Like, look, there's nothing in theaters. Now some things are starting to go back in theaters or they're releasing them on streaming services, but they're still new films. Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's bolster the amount of movies that are available for that. Yeah. But yeah, it, I, I mean, like right now, the two big things I'm watching on streaming services, um, uh, other than WandaVision, because WandaVision oh, yes. um, is uh, 
my wife and I are watching Boston Legal because I never saw it. And oh my God, what a great series that was. Cool. In the 2000s. Um, and I'm watching Eureka. Oh, Because wow. I never watched that. It's like, I'm just going back like <laughs> yeah. 10, 20, 30 <laughs> years to find really cool content I just That's never awesome. saw. Yeah, I never they're... watched the Spider-Man animated show in the 90s. And uh, mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's really terrific. That, uh, that Disney Plus is kind of a goldmine for all of that stuff. Yeah, there's so much, yeah, there's so much stuff there. And, and I think that's why now you're seeing, right, like Paramount Plus got tons of advertising to the Super Bowl. And yeah. uh, HBO Max is kind of like everybody's now either reinvigorating or jumping into the streaming. Because it's like, you know what? It's still going to be months and months and months and months before we're back to anything close to how it was in the U.S., right? With Disney Infinity, you had a, a game that worked, and you released it um, uh, digitally on iOS. And I remember downloading. It's like, wow, this is pretty impressive. Was there ever a you know a conversation about finding a way to just package it all and 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 remarket it or license it out to somebody else to deal with that, or was it? Just- yeah, I think I think by the time when they when they were making the decision to basically shut down doing games internally right yeah. um there was there was some discussion about hey maybe we could find somebody to license this or find another company to take it on right but um none of that really panned out yeah right um i mean there's 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 great products and ips in their vault Right. right. And this is what happens when you have almost like an embarrassment of riches. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I guess that's across all media too. Right. So this is just right. another piece in that vault. Yeah. And you would, and, and like, you know, you could even look at things like, you know, oh, what can we bring to Disney Infinity? Right. And like one that both John, John Vignacchi and I kept going, like, oh, we got to get Darkwing Duck because we both love to Darkwing Duck. Right. Yeah. But it's this, but here's, literally tens of thousands of characters you're like i want that one yeah they're like "Mm." you know like is that is that really the one that you want to bring in when you only can make so many of the physical goods characters at a time you know and um yeah it's the kind of thing where it there the some of the things that that in that configuration made it great were also huge restrictions yeah right um but you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, if if you if you had the ability, like there's a lot of games like you could go back and say, you know, if we did that this way, yeah, now that's that would true. Be yeah, um, that's yeah, so but I, I know it was it was it was a blast, and it was always it was always really exciting to get the work we'd done in front of the people whose characters or franchises those were. Um, you know, just to to on those occasions when their eyes lit up. Oh, they're like, amazing. Oh my gosh, I had yeah. no idea this is what you guys were going to actually do. That yeah. was so rewarding. I love the design. Disney kind of lifted the idea, I think, for their Disney Store toy box line. They look so much like posable Disney Infinity characters. I, I'm okay with it, though, because that, that initial art was just so amazing, yeah. and those figures it, are so cool. It's definitely inspired by it. Yeah. I, I first saw that when... <laughs> I, don't, I, mean, I, I think we were on our... I think we were on our baby moon. We were somewhere and uh, we went into it and there was a Disney store, right? Or it might've been on a Disney cruise. We went on and I saw him and I got angry because <laughs> I was like, um, these don't look as good, right? <laughs> like, they're, yes, they're movable and they're definitely inspired by it, but like, 
they should have just articulated the designs right. Like they're close. Yeah. Yes. Right. But, and I think that's just one of those being so close to it. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's, oh. it's amazing though. It, Cause it, you also have Disney in your blood too. It feels like that never has, it yeah. has left you either. Yeah. It's really, it's, and maybe that's just kind of who I am as a person. Like I can look back at, you know, pretty much anywhere I've been. Um, and I still have a real affinity for that. Like, you know, like I still love all the stuff we did at Cryptic, yeah. right? We tried some crazy things there and some of them worked and some of them didn't. And I still have people I know that are there that I still talk to. Right. Um, and I don't know, it's, it, it's like, why not? Right. Yeah. I always try to approach any place I work being really open-minded. I have the reasonable person principle I operate by, yeah. right? I can really disagree with someone's designs or the way that they want to approach something, but if they're a reasonable person, I have no, I can work with them. That's fine. Yeah. Um, and um, I always really think like you have to have a best friend at work, someone that you really click with and jive with to go and then you can connect and you can bounce ideas off each other. Um, and I feel really fortunate that at every, you know, company I've worked at, I've had, you know, at least one or two people or it's like, no matter where we are in 20 years, like we're still going to be talking on the phone. That's wicked. You know, still zooming with each other and stuff. Um, That's what so, people, yeah. I don't, I don't think they always get that about creativity is just how much it's about the friendships and being a, you know, a decent person. And I, I saw that as an actor, I saw that the, uh, um, uh, the the older actors that kept working and working, I think were pretty good people to work with, and and that's why they kept getting cast mm -hmm. and kept getting hired and hired. And I think it catches up to you in in a creative field if you're not uh, if you're not a decent person, or if you carry too much, I don't know, angst or anxiety or anger into that sort of creative gestation. It's going right. to catch up to you. Yeah. I mean, we, there's a, one of the things I did, I did at Disney is I, I created this like digital coffee table book yep. that was all about creativity for, for the division. And like one of the sections in there is all about checking your ego at the door. It's yeah. so like, like great ideas come from anywhere. Totally. Right. And you have to know when to dump an idea, no matter where it came from or how to onboard an idea, no matter where it came from. Yeah. And it's about making the product and it's about, the team, not about me or you or how that yep. works. Yes. Um, you know, I think because you mentioned actors, there was this time, believe it or not, when Keanu Reeves was not a beloved screen entity. People were pretty down on him. Like, yes, oh, for sure. Yeah. He's doing Shakespeare. Yes. He's in, like, you know, he's he's the Bill and Ted guy. That was the whole thing. And uh, I had a couple of friends that that were working in Hollywood and that came up. Somebody mentioned Keanu Reeves and they said, do you know why he works? Cause he's a really good guy. Yeah. Like people like having him on set and he works hard. Yeah. Like he's a good person. Yeah. So they kind of don't care if he's perfect for it or not. Right. They know he's going to come in and do what's right for the project. And dude, that aura just resonates. I, I was at, yeah. uh, at Sundance cause we were covering, um, your movies, but also talking to actors and stuff about the games that they were into, and and it was it was super fun to go. Uh, and they have all of these luxury suites at Sundance where actors pop in and they get just you know gifted with all kinds of stuff. 
and people wanted to to give him tons of things and he would just he would just politely say no 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 I, I have tons I don't need any of that stuff or he would say but why don't you give it to those people over you know he was just a totally different person mm-hmm. and I did catch a couple of actors that were going in there and I you know I'm not trying to throw any mud because I know that the acting game is it's feast and famine but I did catch a couple of actors that were just like you know I'll take that and that and that and and it just you know and this was before John Wick and before all of like the new heat Keanu right now Mm -hmm. he just always seems like he's got a real level head and it's unfortunate that he's tied up in the uh uh, the cyberpunk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's one of those things. Just like, oh, he he was talent on it. Like, yeah, yeah. It's not like Keanu came in and was like, oh, we should ship the game now. Yeah, I come know. on, you I know. know. Hey, but I, we all wanted that game to be breathtaking for him. Yeah. For him, damn it. Um, yeah. You have something that you you want to give away to uh, some of the viewers that are out here. And gonna... We're in the Disney Infinity kind of zone right now in the conversation. Right, so I got a little. This is not an Infinity thing, but it's a little Disney thing. I have my little Thor. Very cool. That uh, sat on my desk at Disney and stuff, and I thought it'd be cool to give away a couple things on the show. So that's awesome. Well, how can people get that? Um, oh, we came up with a really good. Oh, so they're going to answer a question in the stream there. Yeah. So now you can watch Dog Duty. Um, Disney Interactive was actually, uh, as a division in the Walt Disney Company, was the first group to actually have a piece of Star Wars in something that wasn't Lucas. So what was that? What is so that, Star Wars? Where was Star Wars' first appearance? In Disney Infinity. Disney, in Disney Interactive and in Disney Infinity. Yes. We'll narrow it down for you. Okay. So Star Wars first appearance in Disney Infinity. Okay. Uh, so you guys can answer that and I'll do my best. Maybe put it in all caps so I can see it a little bit easier. And if you've got any questions for Bill, uh, uh, go and put it on all caps as well. And, and I'll start to go through the chat a little bit more. Um, but let's, let's move up to um, Flagship. Let's move right. back to Flagship here for a second. So this, this was you were a founder of flagship and you hadn't founded a company before. Yeah. Um, but you, what came first? Was it the company and then you came up with the game or did Hellgate start coming out of the conversations with, with the people that you founded the company and then that sort of created the yeah. business? Yeah, we, so, I mean, we left Blizzard North. Um, we had a big meeting on Monday, packed <laughs> up our offices, on Tuesday, we were at Dave Brevik's house saying like, well, we all really like working together. That's cool. We don't want to not be work- making video games. We should we should make a game. What sort of company make a game? Um, so it wasn't premeditated. It was definitely coming out of the events that occurred. Yeah, that was a Tuesday decision. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the Tuesday decision. So we, you know, we sat around Dave's house and brainstormed for a couple of days and came up with basically, you know, the, the core foundational idea for what became Hellgate London. Let's do something that's in a near future alternate near future that is an ARPG, but let's mix it up in a couple different ways. And those predominantly early decisions were, um, let's not have it be isometric. Let's have mm-hmm. it be, you know, third person over the shoulder or maybe zoom into first person. We'll play with that camera go, but like much closer to the character. Yep. Um, the setting very different. Um, but then let's also, you know, add some different gameplay mechanics into it, which was, you know, aspirationally some kind of like FPS light type thing. Yeah. 
Um, and that's where it started from. And we worked out of Dave's house for a while or kind of would work at our houses and meet up and share stuff. Uh, but a lot was getting together and doing that. How many uh, of you? That was that was originally the four of us. Wow. It was Dave and Erica, Max and me. And were you already starting to put some, you know, primitive, and, simple yeah, art assets and things together yeah. and, wow. you know, drawing some assets out, writing up a design doc and, you know, Dave, cause Dave thinks by coding. So he started like coding an early 3d prototype. Wow. Um, and we, you know, we got a little bit into it and we pretty quickly realized like we've got to be in a space we can all be in together, but we can't afford an office and Dave's house isn't big enough. Um, so when we brought on kind of the founding members of flagship, the next four or five people, I think there was like nine of us at that point, nine or 10 of us. Um, one of the engineers, uh, Tyler Thompson, like he, he had a big house and he's like, Oh, well we could use my little basement space. And, um, I have a debt I have a couple desks in our like kitchen dining room area or kitchen nook area we could sit in the nook area and then two of us sat in the dining room so we were like in these kind of two floors at tyler's house and you know we paid for his electrical bill that yeah. was our you know we figured out how to do that uh everybody was working sweat equity nobody's making money i think right. we legally had to pay not the four of us but i think we had to pay uh and then um kenny williams not roberta and kenny williams but our proprietary kenny williams <laughs> uh, as well in a, in a co-founder role and like, you know, so we all worked for sweat equity and I think we had to pay everybody else like minimum wage, right? Yeah, Just enough yeah. to make it legal. So they had a work contract, <laughs> you know, it could be employees and all those things. Yeah. And we worked at a Tyler's place for several months. Um, and that's where we built our first demo to show people um, when you're in that kind of environment, everybody goes back to what they can do to contribute, right? So even though I was CEO of flagship, Initially, I was doing all the sound effects and yeah. music stuff. That's yeah. how I got started in the industry. Yeah. I built our website. Like, it's just like whoever could do something did it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that must and, have been super yeah. exciting, right? Like, it you, it, and scary, but it must have been like crazy, you know, inspiring and invigorating because you had left kind of the establishment by that point from with Blizzard yeah. and, and the comforts, the creature comforts that that meant, but also the pressures that that entailed and then you started you you were you know like a, like a startup a, yeah a startup like yeah. right from the scratch that's must have been yeah i mean i i felt a little more comfortable on that because dave and eric and max had done that with condor that became blizzard north right so yeah been through like hey we started a company it got to be successful had a great happy ending so i knew that the people i was doing it with had been down that road before yeah for me first time ever doing a thing like that right and then being in the kind of the lead seat you know, and that was a was actually an interesting conversation because we realized like, you know, any of us could take most of these roles. Yeah. So who's going to, who's going to be what, who's what and why. And Brevik was basically like, oh, I don't want to be CEO because I just ran Blizzard North, right? Yeah. I just present there. So I kind of don't want to do that. I'd rather focus on gameplay and technology and stuff. And uh, so basically kind of came down to who's going to be doing what. And because we knew I would be the most public facing person. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, all right, then you can be the CEO. <laughs> so like it would maybe not the best reason you choose a CEO. Um, but we also knew that we were always going to be talking with each other. Right. It wasn't like I was yeah. some external force coming in and it wouldn't be like, we weren't all talking about making decisions. 
um, together. That's a you pretty know, ideal way to start a company, right? Like you it, already it really know was. you can you can do things together. You already yeah. have a bunch of core competencies that you can rely on each other for, and you trust each other and your friends. Yeah, that's I mean that's pretty great. That was, that was huge. It's the same. It's the same format to a good part in that like someone you trust, a lot of high core competency. Yeah. Um, you know, good personal relationship that I've got now with Author Digital, right? With Serena and Jason Robar. Like I've known Jason my whole career, right? Because um, he was at Microsoft pitching this crazy new thing called Windows and DirectX when wow. it wasn't anything yet. Um, you know, and I was a blizzard and I was the guy he called and said like, hey, we'd like to figure out how we get involved in your Warcraft product. And it was like, I don't know, how could you, like, we're not Windows, what is that? And so it was literally, here's this, um, like this executable file you can put on your floppy disks. So when they, when they, it installs the icon, when they click on it, it'll auto launch, right? Cause that didn't even used to be a thing. Maybe you click on it, it would tell you to insert a disk, right? It's like, no, we're gonna give you this way to like auto launch code. Okay, <laughs> like that's how long ago that was. But now we've, you know, I, when we moved back to the States uh, almost two years ago, uh, it was to join up with Serena and Jason and like, let's make something. And the studio, you know, all the, all the key members and the founding people at Author Digital are people that we've been around the industry 20, 30 years. We've all known each other and worked with each other before. And, you know, it provides, it provides a level of uh, instant dialogue and comfort, right? And you kind yeah. of like mentally know the less shorthand. Yeah. Develop. Right? You yeah. mentally have that connection. You mentally know what you can say and do that the other person's going to just pick up and run with. But yeah, with with flagship, it was definitely that way. You know, and and the I would say the the one thing we never had was a name. Yeah. Right. Like what we were going to call it. And we got we were like in negotiations with publishers, still with no name for the company. Because we come up with a name and then we look it up and like, oh, there's already a website. Oh, there's already a studio. Yes. Oh, like, <laughs> yes. Um, but the more we talked with, with publishers and especially ones that were thinking of moving into the online space, having games online, mm -hmm. they kept saying, you know, we really see this game you're making, this hell game you're making, like we really see as being like kind of a flagship property for us. Right. One that we can like really use to launch the service or where we can get into AAA or like, and after about the fourth or fifth time we heard that phrase, we're like, maybe we should just be flagship studios. Um, and so we, we looked around. It's a great no name. No game, no game companies. Yeah, that were doing that. There was a website, and it was for a recording, like a small recording studio company in Texas, as I recall. Okay. So, but they hadn't updated their website in like two years, and whatever it was. So I called the guy, right, and I said, like, "Hey, I've," and this was my pitch. So, um, me and some of my friends are starting a video game company. And we wanted to call it flagship studios, but we really wanted to get the website. And like, we see you have the website and I mean, like we don't have a deal or anything, but you know, is there a way we could, is there, is there any way we could get the, the website from you, the URL? And so the guy was like, yeah, you know, if you, if you basically pay for me to get a new website, right. The fees to get a website or whatever it is and pay for the first year of hosting. Sure. I'll give it to you guys. That's, so that's not bad. All right, cool. You know, um, and so that was great. So we did that, and that's how we got the website. And you know, but it, but it, that's the stuff you do early on, no matter how long you've been in the industry or what your experience is. Right? It's all you're starting up again. You're starting over. Yes. Right? 
the, the thing that you get by being around for a long time is you can get a lot more meetings with people. Right. People hopefully know who you are and hopefully have a good enough opinion to say, yes, we'll meet with you and hear about the thing you're doing. Who, that who was so the weird. publisher on Hellgate? Was that, was it uh, Bandai or? It was split, interestingly. It yeah. was Handsoft that handled um, basically Asia. Okay. And then there was um, uh, Namco Bandai. Okay, yeah. Bandai Namco maybe, because it was the US group. Yes. That took, like US and Europe and everything else. So we had a very, like there was nothing, <laughs> nothing simple about flagship. Even our publishing deals were between two publishers. <laughs> but we had such a good relationship with Handbitsoft out of South Korea. Um, and because they worked on Blizzard stuff at that we point? We worked on all the Blizzard stuff. And okay, I gotcha, gotcha. Did really well, and I knew their CEO. And so that was a very, again, that was like a very comfortable deal to strike with them. Yep. And at that time, there were not many companies that could say, yes, we have excellent global publishing representation. They were strong in one place, like the West or the East, like to yeah, just yeah, put yeah. Big stupid buckets up. I mean, Hellgate came out with tons of hype, and and you know, like it, it, like people were psyched and ready to go with this thing. Um, it it didn't hit the expectations that you all wanted, and I think yeah. the gaming public wanted. What kind of transpired with with Hellgate London? Yeah, we. I, I mean, it was really interesting. We we did a lot of hype. We did a lot of press around it. Yeah, put it off. Got a lot of people involved, and that's because we were even though we had all a lot of us to come from blizzard right um it's not like we had millions of dollars in our pockets to go start a studio yeah like we didn't right yeah. um and so we knew we had to raise a fairly substantial amount of cash to make that game so the way we were going to do that was like by getting people really excited about it yeah right so when you go talk to the publisher they're like oh wow yeah i've really i've read a lot about this i've heard a lot about it right Be so you're kind of greasing the wheels by the time right. you get there, right? Right, right, um, right. Be able to try to get, you know, deals of the this size. This is pre-Kickstarter yeah. for all right. of you uh, right. yeah, yeah. youngins was, that are listening to this right now. Yeah, this was <laughs> yeah. us going in, in because of our, our reputation at Blizzard, yeah. getting meetings with big publishers, you know, globally, showing them what we had, talking to them about what we wanted to do. Right. And getting them to come along for the dream. So obviously you want them to have had some indication like, oh, yeah, I read a thing that yeah. you guys are working on some big project. Right. And then after it came out, now they're invested, too. Yep. So obviously you got to keep that train moving. Right. Um, I think the, the, the hard part is, is and anybody who's done game development will, will say when you're building it, you have your ideal of what the game is going to be, what features are going to be in, how they're going to work. And it always changes over time. There's always something that you change or you drop or you add or whatever it is, right? You don't write the design spec and then spend five years on it and, or three years, or whatever it is, and say, oh, ha it was exactly the same. Um, I think we had so much attention, right? And the, the pedigree of the studio was high enough, meaning that yeah. people knew who we were. Yeah. Uh, that if there was anything we had ever talked about, even if I had couched it as, here's a thing oh, where yes. it might be like, that becomes like canon. Yes. No, that is going to be in. And then when it's not that's there. The, that's called the uh, the Molyneux syndrome, I think is what the, <laughs> <laughs> that's called. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that was the hardest part was, I mean, when the game came out, we knew it needed more time. We didn't have any money. Yeah. 
right? We, that we were we were out of anything we could throw at it. Um, yeah. The publishers were all in, and we had we had gone and cut some deals to get some more cash just to put at it ourselves, right? I always I always say if you take a Hellgate London box and you flip it over, it looks like a NASCAR on the back. There are so many logos contractually. <laughs> Because we were some, like, people had paid us to put in, here's this voiceover IP protocol. Great, we're going to do that. We're part of the Windows 10 program, right? Put it on there. Now, that's a, that's a double-edged sword because it gave us money to put more into the game to try to get it to where we wanted it to be, right? Without being able to get more money from the publishers yeah. or having money personally to be able to put into it. But then all of those things come with an obligation. Yeah. So when we're going through the cert process, when we're going through you know getting ready to ship the thing, we're in 17 languages. There's a voice over IP protocol. It's on wow. a Windows platform that's just launching. Like, there's so many things that can go wrong. And, oh, and man. You, and, and, and like today in the rundown, I've got a story on that, um, that metahuman technology that, that Epic mm -hmm. is working on. And that's, that's what happens, right? Like you go out there with a, a concept that is like so perfect for Kickstarter and you think like X... Blizzard people starting their own game company, making a Diablo-like, you know, third-person or first-person type of an experience. Mm -hmm. That I mean, people would have gone crazy for something like that, like that on right. Kickstarter. You guys would have gotten all the funding to do every single idea you would have wanted, but you were too, yeah. too. Soon. Yeah, it was. It was a weird time in the industry too. Yeah. The timing for us, there was a lot of things we wanted to do from a business standpoint from a, how we supported the product standpoint yep. that today all sounds super normal, right? In 2007, 2008, nobody was doing. Yeah. Right? We wanted to be free to play. Yeah. We're like, here's what we want to do. Um, you know, we know that part of the model is, and we had always been, you can buy the game, you can play it single player and you can go online and play for free, just like Diablo. Right. Yeah. But then we said, but we want to have continuing content. When I have things like, you know, that we can continue to make for that experience, that's just not wait two more years and get an expansion pack. Right. right? Like the Apple model was. So we wanted to have more of a live services before that was a thing. We wanted, you know, we knew we wanted to do that. And while, for example, Hambitsoft could see, and there was only, and I'm kidding, like two games that were doing this, um, Cartwrighter, Right out right. of South Korea and right. Maple Story, like those are the two right. games that were a free-to-play thing. But but you were already tuned into that. But we were tuned into that because yeah. of our partnership, and yes, so they were like, sure. "Oh, free-to-play, sure, we should try that. That seems like a big deal." By this time, uh, Bandai Namco is no longer publishing. Yeah. Right, they've handled distribution over to EA, so we're working with EA and EA partners, and they're like, "How do you model free-to-play? That yeah. doesn't that doesn't make any sense." Yes, you guys need to be either DLCs or subscription. So we're like, okay, well, all right, let's try subscription, but we're not going to charge what like the fourteen ninety five that the MMOs are charging because we're not an MMO. Yeah. So let's charge like nine ninety five, right? And then we came up with this. So there's kind of two tiers. There's the free to play people that you know we that get some updates, yeah, right thing. But then there's subscribers and they get these other updates. And I will say, admittedly, we were not good at messaging that because no one was doing it. So we were trying to invent the language around it. Yeah. <laughs> this idea that now, like if you go play uh, Star Wars, the Old Republic online, yep, here's the way you get it. You download it, you play for free. Here's a suite of stuff you get. Oh, yeah. but you know what? When you subscribe, you get 
Everybody does it. Everybody understands yeah. it. Hurts all yeah. coins, blah, 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 blah. We were trying to create this business model. Before it's amazing, even- right? Because like, even for all of the 80s, there was, there was a through line there. Like it, it, from 8-bit to 16-bit, like it all just made sense. But it yep. feels like the minute Super Mario 64 dropped, everything got crazy. Like yeah. the way that games got made and the way that if they if they worked, if frame rates worked, if the online stack, everything that could break has been broken. But then every new studio and every new idea kind of picks up the baton and learns from all of yeah. these different problems and makes it better. Yeah, we, I mean, I even, like just think about it now, like there's so many things we did that never got talked about, right? And a lot of this, I think, came from... At Blizzard, we had to build a lot of our own tech because we we're doing things nobody was doing. Yes. Right. On Hellgate London, Hellgate London had its own 3D engine. Right. So this is like 2007. Right. When everybody right? was making their own 3D engines. Yes. When, when people were either spinning their own 3D engines, but Unreal started to become a thing. Yeah. And um, I remember someone asking me after that, like, well, why didn't you guys just use Unreal? Right. There was a 3D engine that was out available. It's like because we couldn't, because what we were doing at the time was building levels with random randomly generated algorithms, right? Dynamic level generation. And we were doing real-time lighting. And at that time, the Unreal Engine couldn't do that. You had to like set up the scene, bake the lighting, create, lay the scene down. Right. We we're like, we don't know what the scene's gonna be. We're gonna lay it out and then light it. <laughs> and, then, right? and it's like, yeah, our engine doesn't do that. It's not a real-time way of doing that. You have to like go put it in the oven and let it make, right? So we had to create a 3D engine that did that. And yeah. it's very possible at the time we were the only game engine that did that. That is right? amazing. We had to spend a second company called Ping Zero to do all of our online gameplay because oh, and because there was no AWS. There was no, yes. oh, yes. I get a service, they're plugging to do it. Like we're deciding how we're doing customer service. We're building customer service tools. Where are we going to go put computers that are rack mounted? Like, you know, it's just like, crazy stuff do, do you take this experience and then uh you know go give talks or or you know go to schools or go to other companies and kind of share some of this yeah i have i have yeah, in the past. i bet it's probably you know it's it's probably it's the kind of thing now when you when you're in i think any industry long enough and you still are fortunate enough to be in it yeah still um which is kind of how i count myself you, I have, and I think if people get a real desire to like, I want to pass this stuff on. For sure, yeah. Right. Because um, they're going to encounter the new version of whatever you guys went through. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I think, you know, one of the things that um, that I will say, pe- people of a generation in, or of an era in gaming are facing now is ageism, Yeah. right? You'll go and you, at whatever level you are, you apply for a job somewhere and they're like, ooh, person's in their 40s or 50s and it's like and it's but you know there is so much hard won experience yes right it's like yeah i get that you want to have like these incredibly bright fantastic minds that are out there now that you're just like you know just coming out of school or like in their first five years of, of experience and they're doing really clever stuff right but at the same time working with someone who can look at a look at a plot of land and say, oh, that's a minefield and I'm going to show you where all the mines are. Yeah. It's really valuable. Yeah. Um, you know, plus there's a, a heck of a lot of things. It's it's funny sometimes, I think, to people that have been in the industry a while, 
some game will come out and people are like, oh my God, I can't believe it's so innovative. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah that's like this game. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, like it's got a clever twist or, or yeah. some update. You know, and I think any designer that's been around for a long time has a whole barrel of those. Yes. Right. There's all these things that never got made, sometimes because the tech wasn't there to make it. There was no way to deliver this kind of game. But, you know, here's a mechanic I've always wanted to do. Right. Uh, so I think I think that's a, a really interesting element that happens in our industry is it changes every three or four years. I love it. There's new, you new have platform. a you have another giveaway. That's, yes. That is uh, Hellgate related. Yes. Look at you. And That's why you're the professional. <laughs> um, and so, you, I I think I remember the question that we had come up. Do, do you remember what it was? Uh, no, but I hope you do. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, on my desk, I have, oh, I do remember. I have one of these. And this is a, this is metal. This is like super cool, very heavy. Um, a collectible we did when we launched Hellgate London, right? This is the Templar helmet. Um, there's only 135 of them. They got made. All the founders, all the team members have them. Uh, a handful of partners who worked with them have them. Um, and I have one in a box. Look still. at that, guys. Look at that. So I, I, I do remember the question. Yes. We designed and made these helmets along with some cool polystone figures. If you, if you have sharp eyes and can see back there, there's one of them, there's a Templar up there um, with a very well-known creative company. Who is that creative company? Very good. That's the question. Very good. Okay. Um, so you, you can uh, reply in the chat. But I think what we should also do, because people are going to watch the archive of this or maybe listen to this, um, but if I get it in the chat, then we're going to try to get that to you. But the way that whatever is going to get to you is going to be through you following Bill, because they're coming from Bill. And so you have to follow Bill on uh, Twitter. It's Bill Roper. It's, it's right up there on the screen. Bill Roper, at Bill Roper. So follow Bill. Um, we got a We got a winner. Awesome. Yeah, it's pathetic you, Earthling. You follow me as well, though, because um, yes, not just because that'd be cool and I'd like it, um, yeah. but I really focused this year on doing a lot more content creation awesome. online, um, doing stuff like this. Um, right now, it's like when I get to 20, I have like 25, some hundred. When I get to 2,600, I'm going to do some giveaways. Dude, the I upside mean, is I've got a garage full of stuff that some of it I'm actually donating to the Strong Museum. I'm talking with them right now. Oh, wicked. And Working with Don? games industry museum in new york yes um, but not everything so uh you know that's the that's the other side of being around as long as i have and kind of being a, a quasi hoarder yeah. is that i have an awful lot of stuff from well, over the years bill uh, i'm gonna say this again like we have we just squash that hour mark like poof, like that i, I, I look up as like holy it's so easy to talk with you you have so much so much interesting information and so many different ways in we're we're like we're just scratching the surface so we we need to do this on a more regular basis yeah and, whenever you whenever you want to have me back i mean it can't be every week because people are gonna get bored trust uh, me no i know but we'll, we'll, but we'll definitely have way back. way more interesting people to talk with but whenever <laughs> you want me to come back uh, Vic, that'd be that'd be a blast. It's well, really I loved I love chatting with you because your perspective is just wonderful. Um, but I do I I do have a couple of uh, uh, you know we're not done yet. But yeah, yeah, good. Uh, yeah, sure. You moved to London. 
And you had made a game called Hellgate London. And were you like a huge part of the the lore building? I mean, that that is part of your background. Did you yeah. kind of craft the story for Hellgate? And is London was it an obsession, a fascination for you? Like, what happened there? Yeah, I've I've always um, I've always really loved England and London. And when we were talking about where to set a game in the near future, I was like, oh, we should like let's do London. I think in the back of my mind, it was an excuse to go there again. Yeah. Um, you know, and we had been going early on in my my gaming career. Um, there used to be a show called ECTS, European yes, Consumer yep. Trade Show, and that was in London. So every year I went to London, right? And I really started to kind of fall in love with the city. It's one of and, the best in the world. Um, it's so wonderful there. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And and I had done Renaissance fairs, which are about Elizabethan times, English Elizabethan times. Cool. And so had studied that kind of stuff. And when we got to, you know, so setting something in London was really cool. There's a lot of heritage there to draw on. There's a lot of really iconic buildings in London, um, you know, at the time. And just really thought that that would be a, a cool setting for a game when I was doing the world building for that. But then when, you know, after, after leaving Disney, because I stopped doing video games, so I, I moved on. Um, and looking at opportunities, um, both my wife and I had always wanted to do the expat experience. Yeah. And so when a chance to go to London to live and work at a, at a company came up, we're like, this, this is maybe this is like, we may not get this chance again. Let's go do it. Right. This is really fascinating. And, um, she is, um, one of her, her passions and even a bit of her educational background is in, um, the study of, England and London and the Elizabethan period. Wow. And so being able to go somewhere that she has not just a, an interest in, but a passion and knowledge about, and like she got to become, you know, a member at the, at the VNA, right? So it's like, and go to seminars there talking about, you know, and costuming. She actually um, is one of the three people that heads the like largest Elizabethan costuming group like they have like 8,000 members or 7,000 members on Facebook right um and she had to actually meet up with people that she's only ever known wow. online in that setting this is for film and and different types of things yeah, like everything that. everything um, yeah like recreation recreation events film television his like uh preservation right nice. there's like everybody Incredible. yeah it's like everybody in that time frame of like clothing and costume and stuff is in this group um, and she's one of the people that, you know, moderates it and founded it. And so that was, you know, that was fantastic. Um, and she was, so that, so there was more than just, Hey, here's an interesting job, right? It's like, this is really like, this is a place we want to live and see what it's like. And it was, you know, we were there for about 20 months. Um, and it was, it was amazing. We, there's so many things we didn't do. Right. And even going there and saying like, oh yeah, let's be resident tourists. But then it's like, then you start actually doing stuff and like, you know, building a, a life over there. And when we moved over there, like our son, um, I think I wasn't even quite two yet. Right. So we're like, oh, hey, you're becoming a true toddler. You want to go to the park every day and everything. And it starts to become more difficult just to like pack up and say, let's go to the Cotswolds. Yeah. Or let's go to, or yes. go you're too young for the Sherlock Holmes Museum today. Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it was great. I mean, childcare in in the in the UK and London is amazing. Yeah. It is a it is um it is a true profession there. Like people professionally 
do childcare in, you know, so getting not a nanny, but getting a sitter to come by, like there's registered services and they come and you meet with them and it's like, oh, this is great. So that allowed us to, you know, feel really safe about having someone okay. stay with Dashiell when we went out, you know, and that allowed us to do a lot of explore. We both love theater and man, there is no oh, better incredible. Yeah. for theater, like, you know, uh, and just seeing ridiculously talented people you know, in plays was great. Um, and, you know, even up until we left, like, I think three days before we left, we're like, look, I, look, I see one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really the meeting point. That's one of the places that I uh, I really recognize, like all roads, the, the, the saying is Rome, and I think it was Rome, but I think London as well, right? Like, the, you could just see the uh, the cultural influences of all of these different territories are scattered throughout the city yeah. and it's just incredible that's so cool i do people still play hellgate london do you still hear from people they, that are are finding it and playing it they do and in yeah. fact um i'm going to give a shout out to um hellgate 2038 yeah. which is a team a di distributed team of game development guys and gals that really loved hellgate and love it so much they basically engineered their own server system and you can go play Hellgate London online. You have to have it yourself. You have to have your own disc, right? Or find a way to get it. Um, but then like they basically recreated the whole online service for, awesome. for Hellgate London. Um, and it's Hellgate 2038, cause that was the year that, 2038 was the year that the game takes place in. Interestingly enough, and I went back and um, read some of the original lore I wrote. And because of when it was, it was like, mm, I want like a near future. Let's see, what would be a cool like, Near oh, no. for there to be like a dystopian event where like demons pierce through the veil like yeah 2020 that's when it, that's what <laughs> happened and i'm like is that what oh. it happened is that seriously yeah seriously oh like, my you, god read the was lore, it a pandemic <laughs> yeah it's in 2020 and the demons pierce the veil between their realities and ours oh. and they float through and that's when like you know humanity starts scattering and they <laughs> Into the underground and like all that part takes out and then the game takes place like 18 years after the invasion yeah right um i'm adding i'm adding profit to uh <laughs> to your name tag prolific game maker and profit yeah. so yeah in our world like 2020 was when like basically it all hit the fan and uh, <laughs> that's what happened um, i felt really amazing. guilty for a minute i'm like uh, oh did i no no i couldn't have had some no that just was a coincidence it must be <laughs> What's the, you have, you've made a million games and you've been playing games forever. What's the last game that just knocked you on your butt that just completely shocked you with its in inventiveness and its, its artistry? You know, I'm going to say the last thing that I played where I was like, oh, wow, this is like so smart and so well done. And like everything belongs to each other was Hades. Very cool. Like it's, it gets so much out of such a limited play field. Yeah. Right? Like they do, they do the whole, Hey, I mean, at its heart, it's a algorithmically generated ARPG. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Right. The art style is gorgeous. Right. It makes sense within itself. The storytelling unfolds over time, like in such a really remarkable way. And they came up with a brilliant in lore reason why you just do it over and over and over and right, over. Right, right, right. Right. And it all makes sense. 
And that that whole element of which this studio, I think, is like really, really nailed is you play through a game and we know you're going to fail, but then you bring something forward with you the next time you go through. Right. And like that is that is so particularly clever mm-hmm. to do that. And Hades came out and I had no expectations, but I knew the studio. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. And I start playing and I could not stop. I'm like, oh my God, this is so great. And it's even at a point where like, oh, you know what? I know I'm gonna fail, but I'm gonna try to get that last thing that's gonna let me bring something cool forward. So the next time I go, you're like, that's the thing. I, I think the biggest trick to any game that bakes in failure, which they kind of do, right? Is to have it that when it happens, my reaction wasn't to get angry and throw my mouse and bang my keyboard and kick something over. It was like, oh, if I'd have just done this. <laughs> like it made me, it, it gave me enough to think, you know, if I did this instead, like I, I would have got farther, I would have won. Yeah. Right. And I, I'm immediately incentivized to do it again. Right. Yes, so yes. as a as a designer, I was like, I'm in love with this game. As a player, I was like, I'm in love with this game. That's awesome. As someone who just like really loves the way that video games can represent artwork, I fell in love with the game. Like, there's nothing I don't like about it. Oh, that's amazing. I had um, Greg Casalvin on uh, on the podcast not too long ago. Do you, you must know Greg. Yeah, I've met Greg once from or twice. the GameSpot days. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Ha, ha, it's just so good. It's just so it's complete. It's like a complete package, which is, you know hard to find. You can find games like, wow, this looks really beautiful, but it's super grindy. Or, you know, the mechanics are great with this, but oh man, it's really sluggish or whatever. Or it's it's a little bloated or whatever. Yes. Right. Or whatever. It's like, like everything there is, it's like, it's, it's, it's not fatty. Like every, every meat on the bones in that game is perfect right it's like lean and delicious That's as a game awesome. now i'm getting hungry obviously <laughs> it is getting close to dinner time yeah, yeah. blair uh, we didn't we didn't um we didn't get a winner for thor but blair farrell is he's a writer about superhero video games he's a great guy i know he's the guy that's going to appreciate thor the most all right i'll get i'll give the answer there you to, go right yeah. so we get it so the very first piece of star wars that was in any any game, actually, and I'm and I'm 99.9% sure in anything in the Walt Disney Company outside right. of Lucas. We did this like, boom! As soon as we acquired Lucas, I was on the phone, right? Is and I called um, Gio Corsi, who was heading up the Lucas game stuff up there. Love Gio. And I'm like, Gio, I got I gotta have something. I gotta have something. I gotta have something in Infinity. Like we're gonna be out pretty soon. I gotta have something. And so he was great. We brainstormed together and he said, you know what? I'm pretty sure because it's it's a it's a lore item in Star Wars that doesn't get a lot of use, which means I can probably like get it through approvals pretty quickly. Cool. Is Yoda's lightsaber. So in Disney Infinity, when you and we were like, and I said, he's like, but it's for me to pitch it, like it's got to be super special. I said, okay, here's what it could be. Once you collect all the figures, if I own every figure in Infinity. In and the I, first wave. The first, the 1.0, yeah. right? And then they all show up in your Hall of Heroes. Like this fountain in the center is going to have this effect that comes up. And then, ah, oh, and it's in a fountain too. That's perfect. Right. Yeah. So so that's what we did, right? And, and Geo got it through and we 
banged it up really fast. And so um, you got a little Jedi, like a little uh, like rebel backpack you wore and then you put your lightsaber out and you got Yoda's lightsaber. That is so cool, man. That gave me chills, that story. That's awesome. And then we pulled that into 2.0. So the big unlock you got for all the characters in 2.0 is you got Luke's, Luke's speeder. That's wild. And then, of course, Star Wars in 3.0. We got to bring the whole thing in. So that, uh, Just incredible. Um, listen, we, we have a lot more to talk about, including stuff that you're probably working on right now that you can't talk about. So We um, definitely will talk about it when I can. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to reach out, or you reach out to me anytime. You're welcome in this basement anytime, my friend. <laughs> I, I know everybody that's listening and watching has loved this conversation, as have I. Um, Blair Farrell, you got to follow Bill and uh, get in co- get in contact with him. Maybe you send him a copy of your book, and he'll send you. Oh, heck Thor yeah! Heck yeah! <laughs> um, and, but uh, I, that that's going to do it for the show today. But you're an amazing guest and a great friend, and and thank you so much for being here, my friend. Oh, my pleasure. It's it's fun to talk and and uh, think about this stuff, and and hopefully everyone has enjoyed. Yes. I think they have. Um, I, I want to give another thank you to our sponsor at uh, the Gaming Stadium. Make sure you follow them on Twitter and say that uh, you heard about them or, or that you appreciate that they are supporting EPN because they rock. Thank you all for watching and listening. We will see you very soon with a, a new rundown. And uh, David Jaffe has uh, agreed to be my guest on the, on the podcast next week. So it's going to be another live show. So hopefully you'll come back for that one. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Bill Roper. You are the best. We will see you soon. And until then, play forever. Play forever.